Welcome to The CrocCast, a podcast for peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. Today's episode features three current Master of Global Affairs International Peace Studies students in conversation about their work as members of the Gambia's Truth, Reconciliation, and Reparations Commission. Listeners should note that this episode does include frank discussions of sexual violence and other atrocities that the TRRC heard about during their work. Hi, welcome to the Crockcast podcast. My name is Erda. I'm a peace studies student here at the Croc Institute, and I'm here with three Gambian ladies to talk about the Truth, Reconciliations, and Reparations Commission that the Gambia had. We'll just start with a brief history of the Gambia and how the TRRC came to be. After a history of colonization by the British, the Gambia gained its independence and became part of the Commonwealth of Nations in 1965. In 1970, it officially became a republic and elected its first president, Sir Dauda Jawara. Despite allegations of corruption, food and fuel shortages, and other problems that dogged his administration, Sir Jawara, the Gambia's first president, kept winning elections until July 1994, when a group of young army officers won a bloodless coup led by Yaya Jameh. The next 20 years of the Gambia's history under Jameh's rule were mired with human rights abuses, including torture, killing and dismemberment of political rivals, the massacre of 59 West African migrants, and credible allegations that Jameh himself had raped and sexually assaulted young women through a fake jobs program. Jameh is also accused of running an HIV AIDS treatment program that forced patients off of their antiviral medication and onto homeopathic remedies concocted by Jameh himself and of staging witch hunts where hundreds of alleged witch doctors were detained and forced to imbibe poisonous herbs. In 2016, to everyone's surprise, the opposition parties led by Adama Barro won in the Gambia's elections. After a tense standoff that had local and regional troops mobilizing, Jame relented and fled to Equatorial Guinea, allegedly with $11.4 million looted from the Gambian state treasury, where he still lives now. After Adama Barro came into power promising an end to human rights abuses and democratic reforms, he created the Gambia's Truth, Reconciliation, and Reparations Commission, the TRRC, to investigate the crime suffered as a result of Jame's rule, hold perpetrators to account, and to help the nation heal. Today, we have three Gambian women, Musu, Safi, and Catherine, who worked for the TRRC to talk to us about their time and experience there. They're also all current Masters of Global Affairs student here at the Keough School and the Kroc Institute. So we'll just start with some introductions, and we'll just ask you how you came to Notre Dame and your full name and anything else you want to tell us. We'll start with you, Musu. Hello, my name is Musa Bakudosao. I was the Deputy Executive Secretary to the TRRC. I came to Notre Dame through my colleague, Safi, who ensured that everybody at the office applied for this opportunity. I remember her sending me the application a few times and I was like, oh, I'll apply, I'll apply. And then the deadline, on the day of the deadline, she just was like, you need to apply for this. And yeah, I applied a few minutes to the deadline and I am here. Oh, thank God. (laughs) (laughs) We'll move on to you, Safi. Hi, my name is Safi Atuture, but I prefer to be called Safi. I got onto the program through actually a lecturer, 
a professor here and I was working with her on the presidential treatment and she was like hey like you're really good there's a really good program on Notre Dame you should apply and I applied and then I got in. Yeah. And what did you do at the TRSC? <laughs> I had three positions. So first I was an investigator, then I was promoted to chief investigator, and then I was promoted to deputy director of human resources. Nice. And then you, Catherine? Hi, I'm Catherine Patricia Jassy, and I worked at the Truth Commission as a women's affairs officer at the women's unit again. I also came through Notre Dame through Safi. Safi told me about the program and persuaded me to apply. <laughs> Again, she was like, you will fit for the program and I think you will get it. And there I am. Yeah, I think what we're learning is that Safi should be hired as a recruiter. Yes, a recruitment <laughs> officer. <laughs> So the next question is really, how did you come to the commission? So before you started working there, did you have background in traditional justice or did you know a Safi who told you to apply? And <laughs> I had never met Safi before, but I've met Catherine before prior to the TRC because we were both working on gender related issues. So I have been working on women's and children's rights since I was nine years old. So I've been in that field pretty much. And as far as peace studies is concerned, my work really focuses on violence against women in our context, looking at harmful traditional practices. But I've also had the opportunity to engage on a high level, say, for example, with the regional consultations on youth peace and security at UN level and also at regional level. So I've been doing that. But I came to the TRRC. I applied for the position of the youth commissioner, which I was shortlisted for, and I was to be appointed in that role. However, the solicitor general at the time recommended me to the minister because they were looking for a deputy executive secretary. And he sort of like recommended me to him and my name went through the, the NGO network that they have. And they were like, oh, I'll be perfect for it. So I was invited over and asked whether I would be willing to take up that position. So it was me deciding to take the commissioner role or me deciding to take the deputy executive secretary role. But I thought about it and eventually I, well, after the interview and they found me worthy, I, you know, was able to take the position of the deputy executive secretary because I thought it would give me more inside as to in terms of working on a managerial level but prior to that also I have a foundation or I have background in international human rights law because I have a master's degree in human rights and democratization in Africa so so you were ready <laughs> how did you come to the TRC Safi? Um, so for me like I've always been interested in like Africa and the Gambia in particular um, like the political scene there so that really led me to study, I studied law and international relations. Then I went on to study a master's in international human rights and humanitarian law. When I applied, I was actually in the UK. So I was actually on Facebook and I, for some reason, I just saw this, oh, we're looking for investigators. You need these requirements. So I was like, oh, let me apply. And I applied and then I got a response the following day. I was like, yay. <laughs> yeah, so then I moved and back to Gambia. Wow. Okay, for me, I mean, prior to going to the Truth Commission, I was working with the International Transitional Justice. 
an organization that was working closely with the Truth Commission at the time and uh, I was collaborating a lot with the Women's Affairs Unit to do work on women uh, participation on the truth seeking process and so from working with ICTJ I transited to the Truth Commission. Yeah. And that's where you all met each other, and then the rest was history. I actually met Catherine before. Oh, yeah. yeah. So everyone knew Catherine before. Yeah, then, well, we didn't know each other. Then the dream team was created. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys have said a lot of fancy job titles. Can you talk a little bit about what it, like, actually meant, so what you actually did in the TRC, and maybe a little of, like, what the TRC actually does? So I was responsible for deputizing the executive secretary, whose role was to ensure that the day-to-day running of the commission is functional. So we were responsible for managing over 100 staff that we had at the TRRC. My role also specifically was in terms of ensuring that I maintained and initiated contacts with local grassroots and also international human rights organizations to make sure that the TRRC TRRC's work is more efficient, but also to raise funds. So I was responsible for project management of over $200,000 that we received from the UNDP through the, the peace building program or funding that they had. So I was managing that. I was managing staff. I was responsible for certain units like the Youth and Children's Unit, the Women's Affairs Unit, the Reconciliation Unit, the Communications Unit. Yeah, so there were like five units and the victim support unit that I was in charge of. So basically, I've been doing programmatic things. I've been doing administrative things and also managerial things. So a lot of things I was doing, but so yeah. a higher level, yeah. <laughs> so for me, as investigator, or well, I was responsible or my team, we were responsible for basically investigating the human rights violations that occurred in the period um, 1994 to January 2017. So some of those um, violations included like torture, enforced disappearance, extrajudicial killings, among many others. So I worked, we were in the unit, it was called the Research and and Investigation Unit. So we had researchers, investigators and then statement takers. So we basically all worked together. So then when I was promoted to chief investigator, my role was to basically strategize the investigation, lead the investigations, basically manage the investigators. There was 11, so it's like nine nine investigators because I also had a colleague who was also a chief investigator. And then when I became deputy director of HR, we basically worked with the staff, tried to resolve any issues that they had, and basically counsel them. The time that I was actually promoted, we had to unfortunately let go of some staff. So then we had to make decisions based on that. But then also there were other roles that were needed. So then we also had to recruit staff, yeah. As the Women's Affairs Officer, our unit, the work of our unit was mainly to ensure that the processes, the activity and the outcome of the Truth Commission is reflective of the women's experience, their perspective as well. So the Gambian society is highly patriarchal and also there is the culture of silence among women and so the Commission knew that it would be very hard to get the women to come out to tell their stories and so the women's unit was established and so 
part of my work was to ensure that we organize programs where women will find safety or a safe space to talk about their stories. So we used to organize activities like the Women Listening Circle. So the Women Listening Circle is a safe space for just victims of the former regime, women victims of the former regime, for them to come and tell us about their stories. And so we also organized what we call the Women's Dialogue, which was more of a sensitization community-led activity where we have women come so we can tell them about the TRRC and all the mechanisms we have in place to encourage them to come tell their stories. So we had different mechanisms in place such, such as the face distortion and the voice distortion that would encourage women to come because most women were afraid to come out because they didn't want people to know about their experiences or they were fear of stigma and shame. So they would rather have their name hidden or have their face hidden for them to tell their stories. So we, the commission had all of those mechanisms in place to encourage them to come tell their stories. So it was our duty to ensure that the women knew about all these mechanisms so that they will come out and tell their stories. So if you want to come publicly to tell your story without being known, you will be covered. And also there was also another, uh, we also had the in-camera hearings where, you know, it's not public. So we make sure women are aware of all of these mechanisms in place. Yeah, so, you know, when we go out there, we ensure that their stories, especially during the listening circles, their stories are recorded so that it's reflected on the report or the final recommendation that will come out. Yeah. Can I just say something? Musu actually initiated the Women's Affairs Unit and she also initiated the Psychosocial Pod Unit. So if it wasn't for Musu, we wouldn't have even had a unit. Yeah. So I think I wouldn't be doing the commission any justice if yeah. I did not. And I think it was very, very crucial because yeah. if you look back, or if you study other truth commission, some of the gaps will be, or one of the gaps will be the gender gap. You know, not having women's perspective, you know, in the truth commission. And I think the Army Truth Commission did very well in that aspect. (laughs) So can you talk a little bit about how it actually works? So say like you're a victim and you want to come forward, what then happens? What's like the mechanisms? So when the victims come to the TRRC, prior to the constitution of the, the rest of the secretariat, it was a bit difficult. So I think the reason why I had initiated both the Women Affairs Unit and also the Psychosocial Support Unit is because as Gambians, we don't really value importance to mental health. And like I was thinking about the fact that there would be people who would be coming in, people who have been traumatized over 20 years, and then they're going to be narrating some of those stories. There are huge possibilities of re-traumatization. I remember when I proposed it to the commission, they're like, no, we don't have money. I'm like, but you can't have people come in without assessing them. For me, it's it wasn't just about getting the story by all means, but getting the story in the most dignified way so that in the process, we would not be able to 
hurt the same people that we we seek to protect. So they would come into the TRRC if they're women. They would first go to through the um, the victim support unit. Then they will refer. We had a whole referral pathway. Then they will go through the women's affairs unit, who would now write their stories and sort of like take their statements, and then are able to advise the psychosocial support unit about some of the perhaps because some of the psychosocial support unit members at the time we only had someone who was seconded from from CSVR in South Africa, and she she's white. So a lot of the victims were not connecting very well. So my role was to ensure that we had Gambians in. So we started with one. The commission made me write concept notes to just justify why we needed to. I was like a unit. They're like no. So my strategy was first have one person. Then eventually I'll be like, oh, I think we have room for more people. Until we ended up having six, a team of six. So it became a unit. So then when the women's affairs unit now teases out the gender issues, they refer them to the psychosocial support unit, who would now make an assessment of whether or not their statements could be taken in details. So then they will transfer them to the statement taking unit which is under the research and investigations unit and then their statements will be taken so prior to also the public testimonies that they make some of them would decline psychosocial support unit but then the psychosocial support unit would also advise the legal team in terms of whether or not as far as the readability of that person is concerned to testify publicly and then when that happened the research unit the investigators together with the legal unit would work together to ensure that the testimonies happen so there's a lot of background work that happens i mean they see the rest of us on tv but the people who do the actual work are the people like safi like catherine who are in the background and then they're making things happen. Yeah. So that's the the process we usually take. Right. The process actually ended up changing within my unit because we found that a lot of victims were very but they just didn't like the structure because by the time like as Musu said they'd go to the psychosocial unit and they would take literally like 2 hours of their time and then they would be given to us to take their statements and by that time they were already exhausted. So we then decided to change. Mhm. so that they would have their statements and taken first and then they would be seen yeah so this seems like a very much like victims led victim in mind way to support them as they go through this process and the end goal is either a public hearing or just like a recording of their story right for the truth portion and we always make it like known to them that it is a completely a voluntary process mm-hmm. because unfortunately a lot of people thought that in order to have their account taken they must be seen they must testify mm-hmm. um yeah so we always made it sh- but that voluntary process is only for victims it is not a voluntary process for perpetrators mm-hmm. which just reminds me of something else i wanted to say within our unit due to the skills of the investigators the difference of skills in the investigators and statement takers it was at the beginning it was in statement takers taking solely the statements of victims and then we had the investigators taking the statements of perpetrators but then that also depends on the case so we would have to also sometimes take statements of both victims and perpetrators So this was like in the investigation so someone would name a perpetrator and then you guys would go out and try to question them or just get their side of the story. Yeah. Okay. So I we're kind of getting into the weeds of it, but I really want to just talk about what were some of the best parts of working for the like the bright spots of working for the TRC. Oh. Oh no. 
<laughs> I think for me, it was the activities and programs that I was able to initiate together with the rest of the teams that I was working with. Say, for example, the Women's Listening Circle is my baby. Mm-hmm. I take it to heart and I take it very personally. I remember when I was having discussions with UNDP about possible avenues that we could provide. And by that time, even we didn't have any of the other units. Like we didn't have the, the Women's Affairs Unit fully constituted. So it was myself and two other Gambians who were working within the UN system. And we had conversations about about how can we bring women in this conversation? Because prior to working with the TRRC, I manage an organization called Think Young Women. And during the, the process of the TRRC, there were many consultations that had taken place, but there were not any consultations with women about what they, they hope or what their expectations are or what they think their role is as far as the transitional justice mechanisms are concerned. Like Catherine said, the Gambia is a very patriarchal society, so the government had consultations with religious leaders who are mainly men, with traditional leaders and also security forces, but left out the voices of women and girls. So when we went on this campaign with that organization across the country, um, talking to women, we spoke to over 700 women about about what their expectations are. And we realized that I was grateful to have had that opportunity prior to coming to the TRRC because it also gave me ideas of programs to initiate within the TRRC because there were women who were talking about, especially those who went through sexual violence, who knew that they wouldn't have a safe space talking publicly. I know the TRRC had tried at some point to sort of like disguise the voices, but there was one particular one that we had wrong. Everybody knew who she was, even though it was disguised, but something just went wrong. So I think it also reinforced the idea of having in-camera hearings more. So we had we had many in-camera hearings that the staff don't even know about, apart from, of course, the investigations unit and then the, the heads of the secretariat together with the commissioners. So not even all the commissioners would, would sometimes attend some of the hearings, especially those that were very sensitive. So for me, the gender part that I was able to lead and also also influence as well as the youth component, those were some of my greatest successes and being able to negotiate and lobby for funds from the UN through the proposals that I was able to write that gave money to the TRRC, for example, to be able to, during COVID, we had humanitarian response program that we were given support and relief packages to these victims in addition to also the small scale businesses that we were able to support some of the women victims in particular with there were other male victims supported but it was mainly women so those are some of my favorite moments in the TRRC. Yeah and that kind of leads to to my next question of just talking about the reconciliation and reparations portions of it so did you guys see that happening a lot was that a kind of a bright spot um uh, can we skip the question (laughs) (laughs) no um, in terms of (laughs) in terms of like to be honest the reconciliation i do feel like in my opinion it was very forced i think the gambian concept of reconciliation is to simply say like for the perpetrator to apologize to the victim i remember one instant where like a victim was like put on the spot she was watching her perpetrator testify and I remember the lead counsel was like oh she's here do you have anything to say to her and then he stood up and he just said like I'm sorry 
And then he asked her, is there anything that you'd like me to do? And then I think she said, like, yeah, I want you to... Because I think she lost her job. She wants money. Yeah, she wants money. She was like, I want you to give me money. And it just caused a backlash on the lady because people were saying that she's greedy. Reconciliation. Yeah. On camera. On camera. And the thing is, like, she was never prepared from what I understand. Like, she was never taken to the women's unit. Mm to be counseled or to ask, or even ask like, is there, what can we do? What do you want to put? Nothing, she was just put on the spot. And then unfortunately people were on Facebook, like the Facebook warriors, <laughs> literally just calling her names. And it was really, really, really And she's the victim. Yeah, yeah, she was basically re-victimized. And Again, yes, I think the victims are not usually prepared. I mean, you don't force people to reconcile, especially for someone who has gone through something very painful, somebody who was violated, whose right was violated. I mean, for me, it it should take a lot of preparation for that one, for the person to come, in fact, to face her peace or her perpetrator. And then I think the Truth Commission failed in that aspect, you know, forcing reconciliation on victims. It was very wrong. And also when it comes to the reparation part, I might be quoted wrong, uh, wrong, but I feel like when it comes to the reparation, the TRRC did fail in one aspect was, you know, before the Truth Commission was fully operated, you know, they went for this nationwide consultation. And at the heart of the consultation was the issue of reparation. You know, when you come out and tell your story, you know, you'll be reparated, you'll be given reparation, you know, but without giving an in-depth explanation of what reparation is all about, what it means was the issue. They didn't really go in depth to explain to these victims or the Gambian people what will the uh, reparation will entail. And, you know, most of the victims were fo- mostly focused on the monetary aspect of it. Because when they went there, they were like, you'll be given, you know, when you come out and talk talk about your experience, when you come and share your experience with the commission, you'll be given this, you'll be, you know, so their focus was more on the monetary aspect. And Reparation entails a lot of things, you know. So I think this where also they failed. I'll just say that in terms of the consultation, at the time the TRRC was not constituted, the secretariat, it was the Ministry of Justice that had embarked on it. And the problem with that was a lot of the people, it's new in Gambia, a lot of people don't, I had theoretical knowledge of it because I have a human rights background, but I had not worked in a truth commission before. So for a lot of the other people, they were just looking at it from the legal perspective. So a lot of people were just excited to say, oh, hey, we are going to do A, B, and see, but at the time, it was just the excitement that had existed. Like people just wanted to talk about the TRRC. The ministry had not even identified the reparations program at the time. So it was quite new. Right now, reparations have rolled out. It's very problematic. Like Catherine said, people were expecting money. But along the way, the TRRC was able to support people through other means, aside from, say, for example, giving them homes to live in for those of of the victims who 
at the time couldn't didn't have the resources sending their children back to school amongst others so it's still happening it's not a lot of money for a lot of people because government only gave the TRC 50 million dollars which is about 1 million US dollars for all the victims so another failure is actually the process like of logging victims in so what what happened was that we logged victims in first and declared them as victims without even taking their statements although it's a good thing but a lot of people ended up benefiting from the TRRC although they're not victims so it kind of like took away i think i don't know but like funding for but paying for someone's i don't know accommodation for like a year and they're not even a victim like it's like you're taking that money from someone else who is actually maybe i'm just I a horrible person i think i would person. disagree i think like they are actual victims they have suffered some form of human rights violations but the only reason why the legal team is not regarding them as victims is because they refuse to acknowledge their victimhood in the sense that they refuse to say that I have been sexually violated. For these are people who were maybe 16, 18 when that sexual violence happened. They have now have they have families, they have children. They're not going to own up to that story because they don't know where it is going to go because information in Gambia even confidential information sometimes leak. At the TRC we've had to deal with several disciplinary take several disciplinary actions against people who worked at the TRRC but were leaking confidential information so those women although they testified in camera refused to say that they were sexually assaulted or they were sexually violated and on that basis the legal team decided that because they didn't release that information even though in their initial statements they had said that but during the process of the testimonies they didn't say that so the the legal team disqualified them as victims because Like Safi said a lot of the statements were taken but the legal team had not taken the time to assess all the statements prior to announcing victimhood that was only done like starting last year and it sort of like affected because some of them were already benefiting from UN programs but I wouldn't regret those people benefiting from that because for me I understand the gender issues in our context where even when women are, are sexually violated there's still the issue of victim blaming they glorify the perpetrator because it's always like oh what was she wearing she wanted it they don't even understand the power dynamics that exist if this is like someone who is violated by a person of authority how do they say no to those people it's their job it's their job that is at risk and they were really young when it happened so because of that the TRRC is like you're not a victim but i'm like well it wasn't money from the trc it was money that came from the un and if those women who we know really have gone through those violations have benefited from that to restore their dignity but also to be able to have the opportunity to help their families where necessary by all means no yeah i completely agree because we did actually have cases like and i complained to mr about that happening but i'm talking about those victims who unfortunately 
because you know we have like a mandate whose violations did not fit within the mandate of the the blame is not on their part it's actually on those that were actually supposed to be doing the job and should have actually informed these people from the beginning that unfortunately like you do not qualify as a victim and then maybe refer them to like the national human rights commission or maybe refer them to another entity organization yeah Yeah. i think this sounds like it is a problem that stems from deciding who is a victim and who is not when it was 20 years of you know tyrannical rule by a government that might have victimized pretty much everyone right and even with like reparations like i genuinely believe like if you gave every single victim like 100 million dollars or and and, yeah you cannot ever take that person's pain away you cannot bring back their Mm -hmm. loved one so it is more like um the reparations part is like a sim i kind of view it as like being symbolic and like missy said like trying to help people get back into like school yeah so going into that how do you think this all kind of ends so there's a report that was meant to be due back in the summer 2021 that has been delayed um see a lot of looks in the room (laughs) for our listening audience so the report was supposed to be delivered back in june 2021 and it was delayed until september then delayed again indefinitely how do you think this all ends for for the gambian people wow i was at the trrc when it happened Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's unfortunately or if it's fortunately that I was able to see, but a lot of people were like very, very frustrated, particularly the legal team who had put in their hearts and souls into and writing the final report. I genuinely, deep in my heart, do not think that the recommendations will be implemented. And even before it is to be implemented, it must be submitted to the front. Yeah. And due to the political situation currently, I don't even think there'll be a submission. Or even if there is a submission, maybe it will be after like the elections. When are the elections supposed to? December. December 5th. December 4th, then 5th would be the announcement. So it's sort of like a political move. I can't say much to it because I left the TRRC in December 2020. But I know before I left, I developed the work plan. So I'm the one responsible for developing the commission's work plan. And based on the work plan that I had worked on together with the the chair of the commission, the executive secretary and the lead council, public hearings were supposed to end May. And then I added an additional month, June, to say, oh, just in case some things happened. But then when I left, things changed because of some dynamics. But yeah, it would we can say that it's political issues. But also, I'm sorry, this is a commission where most of the commissioners, say maybe seven out of the, the 11 commissioners that they have were people who were working in the civil service, which doesn't really pay. Then you come, you're a commissioner. It's like, times 10 your salary there are all those dynamics so people didn't want it to end i know like i was in meetings where there were a lot of back and forth where the chair of the commission and also the lead counselor like were able to end this process by june latest and then there's like backlash yeah and i i remember that and i remember they came up with like a list of additional um what was it themes themes that needed to be investigated (laughs) Uh, into and the legal team were like this this is not necessary but they were really really adamant but i feel like it could have ended i mean i left in june so i really don't know what went wrong but (laughs) so since it's, it's taken this long i don't think the victims will have confidence yeah 
that part. Yeah. Also, I don't think that it's the political will to make to ensure that the recommendations are implemented. We all saw how the current government formed an alliance with the former regime, and I don't know what really happened. They said the alliance no longer holds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I don't know. There's so many things going on. And there's one part. And so it makes me feel like two and a half years of work would just go down the drain. So do you think a report will be delivered and no even the if recommendations? It does, even if it does, the question will be, will it be implemented? Because it's not just submission. Our work was to ensure that a recommendation is made or recommendations are made and implemented. So the question will be, will the recommendation be implemented? And even like the report, the report, it was well written, but due to the cultural aspect of the Gambia, they left out like violations against the LGBTQ community. And like I personally pursued it. I made sure that I took their statement I offered some colleagues to go, oh, I've organised this meeting, and they said, oh, it's against my religious belief, or I personally do not want to um, take their statements. So then I went with one other person, and I documented I um, documented everything, transcribed everything, and then I was told that the commission does not want to look. Except for three commissioners. Yeah, until, except for three. So I think... The three commissioners are going to write, is it a dissenting something? There's some posh word to state that they actually do not fully agree with the report as they have left out like significant parts. But it is very hard to have a commission where you do have some commissioners who are particularly biased. They don't even understand the issue, I think, also, because commissioners, the selection method, uh, the approach that we develop is like the legal team leads the entire process. The commissioners just sit there and ask a few questions at the end of the day. And then in terms of the balance also, they tried to ensure that all the regions are represented. But that also meant like there were commissioners who did not really understand their role. During the time I was there, did trainings with them. This is what you're supposed to do. This is it. But on national television, one of the commissioners who is like a leader, like a bishop in one of the the, the Christian sects, he's like a bishop there. He is a commissioner. And he, when there was a testimony about the prison system and how the prison warrants was like, they had a lot of men having sex with men. His concern wasn't about the deteriorating condition of the prison system. He was like, it is a shame that in the prisons, men are having sex with men. That is an abomination on national television. A commissioner, do you think the report would reflect it? They didn't even consider it as part of the violations. So even if the report gets published, it's going to be omitting a lot of uh, victims and a lot of crimes that have happened. Yeah. Yeah. But then maybe it won't get published. And then even if it gets published, maybe it won't get implemented. Yeah. There's a lot going against it. But as we kind of wrap up our conversation, I just want to ask, do you guys feel like you've personally made a difference in the Gambia? Do you feel like this was good work? that you were doing, I feel like it was. 
I have no regrets working under TRRC. I've had to deal with many challenges, misogyny, patriarchy, because I was young. When, because I remember when I was announced as the deputy executive secretary, a lot of people, particularly those in the diaspora, who don't even know much about the Gambia or what's happening, were like, she's so young, can you release her CV? And then I was contacted by the executive secretary. Oh, they want your CV. I was like, release my CV. The people in the Gambia who know me, know they know my work and what I have been doing. So, And even walking there, you have men who walk under me, who are older than me. They bypass me and go to the executive secretary to have things approved because I would request that, oh, if you are going to submit a proposal, you want to implement an activity, you have to have a proposal, you have to have a budget, we need to, I need to review it. You have to conceptualize your ideas. They don't like writing, they don't want that. So they want, they just bring a budget and they're like, oh, this is what we want to approve. I'm like, I'm sorry, I can't approve this. So they will go to the more relaxed and chilled person who will just approve it. And then it comes to signing checks. I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm really young. I have a long way to go. There is not going to be another commission that will be established to look into financial mismanagement. So <laughs> I, I had to battle a lot of those things. And But at the end of the day, I am glad that I served my country. I would do it all over again if I have to, and I will take the same steps that I took before, even though they were challenging. So at the end of the day, it's for Gambia, it's for our people, it's for the victims, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah. Fighting the good fight. Yeah, exactly. I think it's the same thing for me. At the beginning, I faced like a lot of challenges. I think my biggest challenge was coming out of the UK environment to now work in the Gambia, which is very male dominated. And I was at the beginning, the only female investigator. Yeah, and they were all police officers. So you can imagine, yeah, yeah, I was bad. Um, so yeah, I was so, yeah. But then, yeah, I managed to get promoted yeah. above people that had 18 years experience, five years experience. And I think that's what really like annoyed them. I think also because they had the perception that I could write well. Mm -hmm. I also had like bulk of the work, which I found really challenging with like a five month old who I was breastfeeding. It was very hard, but then also I was able to push those challenges, go past those challenges and just come through the other side. I would never, and I would never regret working for the TRRC. It's very close to my heart because we were like victims of the um, past regime. So it was really nice and very personal mm -hmm. to be able to work for or against the regime that kind of violated you. Mm -hmm. And also, I remember one day the humanitarian relief thing. Do you remember that time? Yeah. I'm just thinking of that because like my biggest success, I think, was being able to work with the victims, just to hear their stories, being able to kind of deal with them on a personal level and just also lobbying. So like the humanitarian thing, I remember one day at like nine o'clock, I'm sure Musu like, was like, why the hell is this girl calling me at nine? But I just um, got off the phone to a couple of victims who said that they were really struggling. So then it's when I called Musu and she came up with the funding for the humanitarian thing during the COVID um, regime. It's like one of my biggest achievements, I think. Wow. We wow. kicked patriarchies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Catherine. For me, just like Musu and Safi, 
I have no re- regrets working for the Truth Commission. It was hard, but then it was worth it. Yeah. So for me, just that opportunity to be work, to be able to work with women, empower women to be able to come out and talk about their issues. It's a big deal in Gambia to talk for women to talk about their issues openly. Mm-hmm. You know, it was hard to get these women to come out and testify or talk about their experiences. But the opportunity to be able to get them and to talk about their experiences was fulfilling. Mm-hmm. Yes. The opportunity, you know, I just want to give an example. When I went to something I will never forget, when I went to Basse, you know, Basse is in the upper river region of the Gambia. And, you know, it was hard at the initial stage to get the women to talk about the experience. So I came up with the Never Again campaign is an issue. Mm-hmm. I, I was like, yes, here you are, women, talking about the Never Again, Never Again. They, they love it, Never Again, Never Again. You hear them sing, you know, chanting. But I'm like, you are here talking about the Never Again, and yet you, don't, you are not ready to talk about your experiences. How can the Never Again be achieved? The Never Again is saying I don't want the atrocities that happened to me mm-hmm. to happen to my next generation. So if you don't talk about what happened to you, there's no way the TRRC will know, there's no way those experiences will reflect on the report and there's no way we can put a stop to it. And that means your next generation will be affected. They will go through the same thing. Mm-hmm. And there was silence all over the room. Within some few minutes, they started talking about their experiences. And one woman came up to me at the end of the program and said, I felt so empowered. And after talking about my experience, I feel like a body was taken off me. I feel mm-hmm. so healed. Mm-hmm. For me, that was a success. Wow. One thing, as much as it's very fulfilling, I think the one thing that we all need to acknowledge as peace practitioners is that there is such thing as like traumatization secondary Secondary trauma yeah because i feel like i really like suffered from that and i don't know how these people are doing it musu since she was nine years old having to (laughs) and Catherine as well hearing like these atrocious things so i think it's really important that we just advocate for peace practitioners to also have psychosocial support i think that's really key i mean we need after hearing all of the stories of victims it's always important that you as a peace practitioner are able to also go through psychosocial support Mm -hmm. you know i can remember finding it very difficult to sleep having challenges to sleep I mean, after hearing all of the stories of women, you know, their violation, it was really hard for me. And then I, you know, what I did that really helped, and I found it here, was journaling. Mm. Yes. You know, the only regret I have is not continuing to do that. So when I had the problems of of sleeping due to the stories I had of women's experiences, I decided to write how I felt, you know, and I kept writing and writing without stopping. I just needed to just, it it was like venting because there was no way I could talk to some 
people about mm-hmm. those feelings or even the experiences of women because of the issue of confidentiality we were not allowed to share Be some of these isolating. things you know i couldn't share it with friends i couldn't share it with family so the only thing i could do at the time was just wrote how i felt mm-hmm. and i did it and also another thing that really helped was you know talking to my boss i was very close to my boss talking to my boss of how i feel so what mm-hmm. we used to do is you know after work we we'll just the tiarasi was very close to the beach we we'll just walk down the beach and then talk to each other about how we felt or some you know how we felt about it, what we heard mm-hmm. or what we saw so it's very important yeah. psychosocial support for practitioners is very important Yeah, I think it it can be very isolating to be in that position where you have to take victim statements and hear them and then transcribe them and then write a report about it like over and over again for a lot of different people. And so that can have a toll on you as the practitioner, as the investigator. Yeah, right. yeah and I think it, it is an important point to, to up and coming peace builders and other people who want to get into this field to make sure that you find your own coping mechanisms, your journaling, whatever it may be. To, yourself. Yeah, self-care. Yeah, yeah. Jen, Jen and Susan would say. Yeah. <laughs> It's valuable. Yeah, so I'm just going to wrap it up and say thank you so much, ladies, for doing this and for talking about your experiences. Is there anything, last final thoughts that you want to say before we say goodbye? Uh, no, thank you. Yeah, yeah Thank you. Thank yeah. you for the opportunity. Yeah, no problem. Whoever listens to this, if you're not in Croc, or Kyo School, come to, come Apply to the Apply staff, top recruiter. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I would also recommend it as yeah. a student. <laughs> All right, thank you so much, thank ladies. Thank you. You've been listening to the CrocCast, Peace Studies Conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. Please note that we are now accepting applications for the Master of Global Affairs International Peace Studies program that today's guests are a part of. Apply by December 15th to be considered for fall 2022 admission. Learn more about the program and how to apply at croc.nd.edu slash masters. You can also find all episodes of the CrocCast on Apple, Google, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people find our show. For more updates, stories, and videos from the Croc Institute, follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks for listening.